You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 7th of November. And on the programme today, as an annual report on women's rights around the world ranks the UAE 22nd out of 177, we found out what the country is getting right and what it is getting wrong. That was with the index author. Plus, we spoke to a local campaigner on efforts being made to improve female representation in the workforce. Meanwhile, it's been one year exactly since all COVID regulations were dropped in the UAE. We took a look at how far we've come in the last 12 months with both a local and an international expert. And as Ed Sheeran fever sweeps the nation, we asked a musicologist what it is exactly about Ed's wide appeal across every single demographic. Chris McCarty also joined us to talk us through all the latest sports headlines. And Dubai police told us why they're rewarding well-behaved e-scooter riders. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Lovely to have you with us here. It is The Agenda. Now, this slightly surprised us because... It has been exactly one year since the final lifting of the pandemic safeguarding measures here in the UAE. Now, we're very good. I'm I'm very well behaved at archiving and diarising and making sure that I have all my anniversaries marked in my calendar so that I can make sure I'm covering the news accurately. But I have to admit, this one really sort of, I had to double check it because I don't know about you, but it feels like it was a lot longer ago that COVID was over. But in fact, up until about, well, literally, quite literally, up until 12 months ago, we were still needing to present a green Al Hassan app to access public places in Abu Dhabi. And people were still needing to wear masks indoors. And I remember the sort of, there was a shift in the public consciousness and people started to stop wearing them before the rules changed. So there was a lot of like, the children are still wearing them at school. You know, can't you, you know, you should take responsibility and you should be wearing them in the malls. And that lasted for about two or three weeks until eventually the government came out and said, yeah, that's it. We're going to stop. And that was the 7th of November, 2022. So we're going to take this opportunity to sort of look back over the last 12 months to discuss, you know, how the hospitals, how the doctors are faring and how life in our clinics and hospitals has changed since the pandemic. You know, have the the rules that came into place, have any of them survived the, the end of the pandemic effectively? So I'm joined now in the, uh, on the line by Alan Stewart. He is Chief Clinical Officer at NMC Healthcare, of course, one of the biggest healthcare providers here in the country. Alan, thank you so much for joining me. I think for many of us, those masks sort of rules and the pandemic precautions feel like they were a really long time ago. But I guess you might have a slightly different viewpoint from, from a sort of healthcare stand. Yeah. Hi, Georgia. Certainly, um, I agree with you. If, you. if you're out and about in the community, then you would see uh, not very many people wearing masks. But if you go into a, uh, a clinic or certainly a hospital, um, you will see the healthcare providers uh, the vast majority of them will be wearing wearing masks. And, um, you know, we leave masks at, at the entry point, whereas before we would have um, somebody handing out masks to people to make sure they wore it. Now it's, um, 
it's optional in most circumstances, but many people will just pick them up and wear them as they go into a hospital as a, as a matter of due course. Yeah, I think it's quite important as we have this conversation to remember that COVID is still among us. And in fact, it is a problem still for vulnerable patients. Uh, in fact, somebody's just sent me a message through on WhatsApp. Let me see if there's a the name on this. No name on it. But uh, this person says, I've just come back from the United Kingdom with COVID big time. I think it's a new strain. I've had lots of nausea for the last 10 days and it is still about. I've kept away from people because I don't want to pass this on even now. And I imagine ultimately you're healthcare professionals are, you know, facing potentially new strains of COVID every single day as they come across patients? Well, interestingly, the um, uh, to me, the, the, the thing that COVID has done is completely raise our awareness around um, other infections. Uh, influenza, obviously, this is the, the time for influenza. The incidence of COVID is actually relatively low and clearly based on the WhatsApp you received that People are still contracting COVID. We're still diagnosing it. The numbers are actually fairly low, though. Um, and but but we do have um, certain policies and procedures in place, either more stringently adhered to now than they were before COVID, or new ones in, in place that we um, that we continue to use. So, for example, the use of masking when um, uh, we're undergoing any type of aerosol aerosol procedure. Um, and in the emergency rooms, we'll see um, areas for people with infectious symptoms that are much more discreetly maintained now than, than they were before, uh, before COVID. So it's still around, not as uh, prevalent as one might think, but um, we want the public just to be aware of respiratory infections in general and certainly uh, influenza and precautions that need to be taken for that. Do you think ultimately it has improved hospital best practice? Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt. There's nothing like an emergency situation that goes on for two plus years to to make us pay attention to um, to how we do things and uh, the um, the precautions around people who have infectious symptoms is uh, is very much heightened. Our procedures around. Uh, protecting our staff and protecting our patients and families are much more stringently adhered to than I would say they were before this uh, this event occurred. Do you think patients are more nervous in healthcare settings since the pandemic? Do you think there's a, a greater awareness among the public that, you know, you can very easily contract diseases through just the air? I think there is certainly um, heightened awareness I think people who have um, chronic diseases, um, elderly people, are uh, seen probably less frequently visiting in hospitals than they would uh, before. And, uh, you know, a general um, sense of um, angst, perhaps in in crowded uh, areas. I know that personally, uh, even though I don't fit into any of those categories, when I see a bunch of people piling into an elevator with me, I think my heart rate goes up a little bit. It's funny you mentioned that. There was a really full elevator on the way on the way down yesterday. And I was like, no, 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 you guys go ahead. And they're like, no, 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 come in. And I, I had to go in because otherwise it would have seemed rude. But I didn't want to. You know, there were at least six did people in there. you your breath while you were in the elevator? <laughs> I did. 
I did. I faced the door and I held my breath. It was only two floors, so no one went blue, which is good. Um, so, But it is interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, one of the big things that has certainly impacted my home country of the United Kingdom is that you cannot get a doctor's appointment now for love nor money because of the knock-on effect of all those diseases, all those illnesses that weren't treated during COVID when the NHS, uh, the National Health Service there was under incredible pressure. Have we seen any similar backlogs here or did we move through it mercifully unscathed? There were um, backlogs, uh, certainly. Um, however, the one advantage that, I mean, this this um, country is, is a total polar opposite to the UK in terms of access to care. We have, if anything, um, enhanced access to care. So the ability to go and see a physician here um, it's not very, you know, it's not a challenge as it is in, in UK. So I, I don't think that's, that's a big issue for us. But one of the, one of the interesting sort of aftermaths of, um, of COVID has been the enhanced use of uh, telemedicine, which, of course, is a different way of accessing your healthcare provider. And we see amongst some, some of our populations, generally the, the well-to-do populations, there's an increased in, uh, interest in using um, telemedicine. Uh, whereas um, the less advantaged populations really seem to want to see their, their doctors in person. So there's less of an uptake uh, there. That is uh, really intriguing to hear about that telemedicine up, uptick. I have to admit, personally, I'm not I'm still not that keen on it. I still haven't made the transition to being happy to see someone through a video screen. But I suppose uh, onwards and upwards, and, I, and eventually I'll, I'll come around to it. I'm just a bit of a Luddite, maybe. Alan, it's been a great pleasure having you join us on the studio. Thank you uh, so much to sort of talk through. I suppose we've been, we're sort of reminiscing on a certain level, but it is so nice to be through the other side. Is, is that the feeling within the healthcare community? Do you, do you feel like I do, that you're on the other side of COVID? and the pandemic is a distant memory. It's, it's a strange feeling, isn't it? It, 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 is, uh, it does seem like a distant memory, but there's also an emotional context that it, it draws on certain feelings that we have related to the incredible um, stress and anxiety and the, the sadness around that, um, that time period. But I would say in general that um, our healthcare staff feel that they've uh, they've been strengthened by uh, by enduring this and that our health system actually is stronger because of it as well. Of course, uh, well worth remembering the uh, extraordinary efforts made by those healthcare workers. I remember I went to the field hospital in Dubai uh, right at the very peak of the pandemic and they dressed me up in all the protective gear and in I went into the field hospital um, and I have no idea how they managed to do their jobs wearing all of that kit. Uh, I could barely, I actually felt slightly sort of, um, I found it hard to breathe at first, not because there were, it was restricted, but because it felt, you know, that you were wrapped up in cotton wool and, and you felt, it felt very restrictive in, in sort of mentally more than physically. Um, and I honestly, I have no idea how they managed to work such long hours, you know, in high, sometimes in high temperatures, wearing all that protective uh, gear. And so uh, my thoughts go out to all of the staff that worked through that time and, and who continue to work, as Alan mentioned, in our hospitals and clinics now. Alan Stewart there, Chief Clinical Officer at NMC Healthcare. Thank you so much for taking the time to sort of look back there on uh, the repercussions of COVID-19. We are exactly one year after the UAE dropped precautions. 
You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Lovely to have you with us. And it has been exactly a year now since the UAE lifted all its pandemic safeguards. It feels extraordinary that it was only 12 months ago. I, I don't know about you, but it feels like way more than a year. But I think it's worth sort of taking stock 12 months after the lifting of the mask mandate and things like that to just sort of think about what we've learned from the pandemic. Um, So we have, uh, in fact, Jen managed to find a fantastic key international figure in the fight against COVID. Uh, It's virus genomics professor Paul Kellum. I'm delighted to say he's joined us now on the line and he was a member of the UK's Pandemic Institute, still is, and was an advisor to Britain's vaccine task force. So that's that's two touchstones there for you immediately. Professor Kellum, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the agenda this morning. Um, I mean, we saw a huge variety of responses around the world globally to the pandemic, and there were varying levels of success. Would you say that we learnt from the pandemic for future potential incidents? Well, thank you for inviting me this morning. I, I certainly hope so. Um, I think, you know, as you're reflecting on the last year, it's also worth casting our mind back perhaps a little bit further, four years where the virus wasn't known. And I think the world generally thought it had some degree of preparedness for a pandemic. But clearly that that first year, 2020 onwards, um, it was pretty clear that the reality of a fast moving um, respiratory infectious disease was beyond the preparation of pretty much everywhere in the world. And so we did learn a lot in that first year. Um, And hopefully those lessons are embedded in future responses. I agree. Oddly enough, this is a very relevant conversation over in the United Kingdom at the moment because there's just been, I think it's a, a parliamentary review, it hasn't there, into all into how the British government responded to COVID-19. I mean, I remember in the UK, there was almost an astonishment that if you told people to stay home, that they actually would. And I know there was a real resistance at the political level to, to issuing that, that command. Here in the UK, here in the UAE, completely different political situation and and when we were told to stay home man did we stay home (laughs) and and i have to say it was incredibly effective it did stop the spread and i think the uae came out a lot faster as a consequence is is the stay at home mandate the way to battle these things do you think I think these things are very, very difficult um, to have on a country by country basis because populations are very different. Um, You're right, in the UK, we were perhaps slow to um, go into what we call a a stay at home or a lockdown. And consequently, we were probably slow to come out of it as well and then slow to go back in around about Christmas of, uh, of 2020. So I think it's a thing that you've need in your armory but it's got to be uh, a last um, resort i think to shut down economies populations schools because of the the knock-on effects that really means you've got to have the other things that you use in a pandemic um, up running and ready to deploy beforehand whether that's mass surveillance mass testing um, rapid vaccine development and rollouts, the positioning of other um, ways to treat an infection. All of those things can, if you get them right early on in a pandemic, limit spread, 
um, and limit the impacts that you have on, on societies. Nevertheless, you're right. They were affected because they do the one thing that the virus doesn't want a population to do, put distance between individuals and stop chains of transmission. So from, from first principles, that's always a good way of stopping infections spreading. Now, of course, the the real thing that got us out of the pandemic was the extraordinary speed at which vaccines were created. Not one, but but several vaccines. What have we learned from that process for not just future pandemics, but but future diseases? I think we've learned a lot. I think we've learned that um, prior blue skies research, whether it's in things like the mRNA vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna um, produced from their biotech partners, um, or whether it was the ability to sort of rally um, large pharmaceutical companies and their vaccine production. Um, That was there, but we were lucky as well. Um, This was a virus that we could make a vaccine too quickly, and we didn't know that really with a great deal of authority before we started. Whereas, you know, other virus diseases such as HIV, we've been working for decades and still don't have a vaccine. So I think it's right to be optimistic that we can make vaccines quickly in the future, but we also have to be a bit bit cautious that we don't think that this will happen without a lot of effort and a lot of work. I think the real trick now is to be prepared um, to start to think about how we can lay down vaccine technologies and um, and vaccine test um, batches for use, and also to make sure that we have this um, ability to scale. I think um, it's very easy to look at vaccine deployment and when you get the, the shot in your arm, think, wow, that, that's great. But to get that single vial um, into a uh, a vaccine recipient has an enormous um, chain of events from discovery all the way through to manufacturing, um, filling the vials, transporting them, storing, storing them, etc. So that ability to, to work at scale clearly can happen when you need to, but we need to preserve that for the future. I've got 30 seconds left with you. Do you think we have learnt our lesson? Now, I know that to a certain extent, some preparation had been made for the potential of a pandemic. Do you think that now we've had one, that we're ready for the next? I think we're on the cusp. If we really embed the things that we've learnt, then yes, we can be better prepared. But there is, as you say, you know, that year of um, now when you're reflecting that it seems to have gone in a blink of an eye and people return to what they were doing before. So the trick, I think, is to preserve the memories and the good practices that we did have and learn from the things that didn't work so well. Professor Callum, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me on the show today. Of course, based in the United Kingdom, so you've got very, you've got up very early in the morning to talk to us, and we really, really appreciate your time. Professor Callum there uh, is uh, an expert in virus genomics. He's a member of the UK's Pandemic Institute and also an advisor to the UK's government's vaccine task force. Fantastic to have you join us here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are taking a look at politics on the programme this morning, which is uh, always interesting territory. Um, But it is good news because the first session of the new Federal National Council term opened on Monday in Abu Dhabi. Now, 20 members of the new 40-member Emirati Parliamentary Group were elected last month. 
and notably half of those are women. And this new session comes as an annual report. Actually, it's not. It's biennial report on women's rights around the world. Ranks the UAE 22nd out of 177. And that is good news, obviously. And it's in part due to those high levels of female representation in Parliament. Now, the index is published by the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. It basically looks at 13 indicators of women's status. So you've got things like employment, Uh, community safety. Of course, we rank highly on that here. Uh, Financial inclusion, that stuff like, you know, for example, if women have their own bank account, share of parliamentary seats, as mentioned, and then things like access to justice. Um, As an overall, the researchers found that many of the best countries in the world to be a woman uh, to be a woman in are in Europe. Um, But we wanted to sort of get into obviously the UAE more than the rest of the world. So earlier, I caught up with Elena Ortiz. She's the lead author of that report. And she started by explaining the aim of their research. The Women, Peace and Security Index multidimensionally ranks and scores 177 countries and economies around the world in terms of women's status. So we do this by distilling country performance on 13 different indicators into a comparable score between zero and one that ultimately determines country rankings. So these 13 indicators are classified across three dimensions of women's inclusion, justice, and security. And the index really offers a valuable tool to policymakers as a way to identify exactly where gaps and disadvantages exist in countries and where attention and resources are needed to activists to hold governments accountable to their promises on advancing women's status and gender equality, also to journalists um, who are looking to add context to their story, um, as well as to academics who are looking to track trends over time by region, etc. Which countries did best in your list? Denmark leads the rankings this year as the best place in the world to be a woman. All of the top dozen countries on the WPS index come from the developed country groups, so mostly countries from North America and Western Europe. Notably, all five Nordic countries rank among the top seven, so those states tend to perform particularly well. And which countries rank the worst? I presume they'd be sort of the usual suspects to a certain extent, you know, places where countries are struggling with poverty or conflict, for example. Yes, exactly. So actually, we see all bottom 20 countries on the WPS index have experienced armed conflict in the past two years, which really reiterates what we already know, that violent conflict disproportionately affects women. So the bottom three countries this year on the index, uh, ranking last is Afghanistan, second is Yemen, and third worst is the Central African Republic. Seven of the bottom dozen countries hail from sub-Saharan Africa. And again, all bottom countries uh, in the midst or have recently experienced armed conflict. So how did the UAE fare? So the UAE this year ranks 22nd in terms of a women's status globally, which is the highest score and ranking of any country in the Middle East and North Africa region. So the UAE performs well on most of our 13 indicators. So a couple of highlights include best performance regionally on women's education. On average, women in the UAE have gone to school for 12 and a half years, uh, which is significantly higher than the regional and global average. The country also has the highest 
highest levels of women's financial inclusion, meaning that 87% of women in the country have access to their own bank account, which is significantly higher than the second best country in the region, which is Bahrain um, at 75%, so more than a 10 percentage point gap there. It's also one of the five countries in the MENA region where 100% of women have access to their own cell phone. It's the only country in the region where at least half of representatives in parliament are female. Um, It also has the most equitable legal code in the region. It does really well, too, on uh, perceptions of safety. As far as scope of improvement for the UAE, what would you pinpoint as areas that the country could work on when it comes to women's rights? As we see in all countries on the index, uh, the UAE has considerable areas for improvement too. And that's a key takeaway for us on the index is even countries that score well have areas where improvement is needed. Um, So for example, 18% of women in the UAE have experienced intimate partner violence in the past year, which is on par with the regional average, but significantly higher than the world average of 13%. The UAE, however, has also shown improvements on a number of indicators. So for example, average years of education have increased almost a full year since our first index in 2017. Um, And we've also seen an improvement in financial inclusion from 76% in 2017 to 87% today. That's very encouraging indeed, as is the number regarding the number of female politicians working for the national parliament, because there's only a few countries, aren't there, that have as many women as the UAE does in their parliament. So there are actually five countries in the world where women are equally or more than equally represented in government. And those include the UAE alongside New Zealand, Mexico, Nicaragua, and Rwanda. Globally, on average, I think it's only 26% of national parliaments are female. So countries like the UAE are surpassing that twofold. That really is very interesting indeed. And and has it made quite a lot of progress over the last few years? Because I know that that's something that the country has been working on very hard. I did take a look at specific indicators that the UAE has moved on. Um, and two that stand out in terms of progress are education and financial inclusion or bank account access. But the one that's deteriorated the most actually is the country's score on discrimination in the law. So the country's legal code has gotten less equitable over the past five years. But that's the only indicator that has shown deterioration. Everything else has shown consistent stagnation or improvement. That's so interesting on the legal pointers, because actually we've seen quite a lot of reforms here in the UAE over the last couple of years. And and I think the general impression of everyone here in the UAE is that those improvements have actually helped women. So it's interesting to hear of a sort of independent report from the outside potentially disagreeing with that. What is the, the relevance of the access to bank accounts? Why is that something that your organization chooses to measure? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So women's access to their own bank account and financial resources is key to their decision making and agency. So for example, financial inclusion is a safety issue. If women don't have access to their own financial resources, they may not be able to leave abusive relationships or unsafe situations. Also, you know, due to entrenched systems of patriarchal norms, it's oftentimes the husband or male figures who control income, resources, decision making around how money is spent. So this is a really important reflection of women's ability to independently make decisions, to control their own assets and income, and also as an access point to any mobility or the ability to leave any kind of unsafe situation. 
absolutely fascinating there to hear about the uh, progress being made here in the UAE in uh, advancing women's rights. But of course, uh, also the, uh, the the sort of space for improvement, the areas for improvement. I was really intrigued, as you heard just there, about the sort of uh, I suppose the sort of lack of enthusiasm for the labour reforms that have been taking place here, for the the legal reforms for women. Uh, so certainly something to raise maybe with a with a team of lawyers coming up over the next few days. Uh, but huge thanks there to Elena Ortiz, who is the lead author of that report on the from the Global Women Peace and Security Index. As you can imagine, I'm very interested to get your views on this. Would you agree that? the UAE should rank 22nd out of 177 countries when it comes to women's rights. Do you feel as a woman that you have equality here? Do you feel safe here? Do you feel that you have uh, free and fair access to to bank accounts, for example? Uh, Certainly, from my perspective, I have never felt safer than I did living here, than I do living here. I think that's probably one of the reasons why my husband and I have, have stayed here with our children. We did that classic thing of deciding to come for two years, and now it's been more than nine. Um, And I think a huge part of that is that feeling of safety. I was living in London, in East London, in fact. And although, um, well, no, actually, I have to be honest, I didn't feel safe quite a lot. You know, I'd walk back from the tube station. It would take about 15 or 20 minutes. And if it was late at night, I would hold my keys between my fingers. I think we all learned how to do that. And in my sort of slightly more paranoid moments, I would, you know, I would really be very aware of who was in front of me and who was behind me. And if there was a, a man walking near me and I was, you know, I felt like I was on my own, I might feel inclined to sort of dip into a cafe or, or a restaurant to, to wait until he's gone past. Now, compare that to night before last, where at 9.30 in the evening, I decided I needed to walk off some stress. And I just walked through Um Sakim, which is where I live in the complete darkness with headphones on, all the way down to the beach track and walked backwards and forwards along the beach track. And then back at about, I don't know, probably 11 o'clock at night, didn't even occur to me to take my headphones off. And that is a huge difference. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Yep, we're talking about women's rights and women's inclusion on the programme today. And that is off the back of good news because the UAE has come 22nd in a biennial report on women's rights around the world. Now, I mentioned this on the business breakfast and Richard Dean was a bit like 22nd. That's not very good. And then I realised I needed to put it in context. That is out of 177 countries. Now, the index is published by the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. And it captures 13 indicators of women's status. Uh, That's including employment, uh, for example. Then there's community safety. There's financial inclusion. There's the share of the parliamentary seat and access to justice. Now, of course, here in the UAE, we have done particularly well when it comes to share of parliamentary seats. We are one of only five countries in the whole world that has either equal uh, sort of share of parliamentary seats for women or some of the countries have more women than men. But uh, that's one only five countries. Uh, needless to say, overall research has found that most of the best countries in the world to be a woman are apparently in Europe. And of course, the worst are in conflict zones. Uh, the UAE didn't just rank well on parliamentary access, also in terms of education and financial inclusion amongst others. However, 
We'd like to know how that sort of translates on the ground in the UAE. And as a consequence, I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by Emma Burdett, who is the founder of WILD, which is the Women in Leadership Deliver Network. She's also a keynote speaker, moderator and transformational coach. Busy woman has made the time to come and join me in the studio. Thank you so much, Emma. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Thanks for having me and nice to see you again. It is lovely to see you again. Now, obviously, great news as far as parliamentary seats and representation at the very top of the country, you know, in the civil service, uh, all looking very good from a woman's perspective, uh, you know, up at those higher echelons. Has that translated into the C-suite in the workplace here in the UAE? Have we got lots of women? Are we teeming with women? Sadly not. I think that uh, I don't want to be too negative, but what we see is that the government does set a precedent for equality, which is amazing, especially since the UAE launched a Gender Balance Council in 2018. But unfortunately, it doesn't filter through and infiltrate some of our private companies. So I think that ultimately the PR can be very good. I think that companies have the right intention, making the right noise. But unfortunately, on the ground doing the work, the progress is quite slow when it comes to uh, gender equity. That's really interesting you say that because, of course, there's a lot of light and sound and pink cakes around the time of sort of Emirati Women's Day and things like that. And then it all goes a bit quiet for another 12 months and then it starts again. I mean... What are the solutions? Because it does feel like I have this conversation every single year and it doesn't, we don't seem to be seeing that shift, particularly when it comes to things like equal pay. Yeah, I think that when it comes to pay, you know, the World um, Economic Forum has cited that there's 115 years for the Middle East to reach fair and equal pay, even though there are laws in place. In terms of solutions, I think it's really important to get a gap analysis and find out, you know, what exactly is going on within the company cultures, first and foremost. But there's lots of initiatives that companies can run to um, empower and ensure they build inclusive environments, especially in the meeting room scenarios. What we see... um, In the region is lots of patriarchal autocratic structures still, lots of companies that maintain presenteeism. So even some companies don't have that flexible working where, you know, mothers can um, have the option to pick and choose the hours that they work. In terms of actual solutions, I believe strongly in allyship. So it's about men and women working together. And interestingly, uh, when men advocate for women in the workplace, it gets much better results than when women advocate for women in the workplace. Oh, that's so depressing, isn't it? You know, I I think... I mean, great that anyone's advocating for anyone, but it's so depressing that you need a man to advocate for a woman to get forward. It shows how far we've still got to go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's lots of outdated talent management structures. There is a high proportion of return to work mums who struggle to get back in the workplace. I think 90% want to go back after a career break. And something like only 20% can get back and they face a 30% pay cut. 
you know, just because women have children, it doesn't make them any less ambitious or competent. So I believe that businesses are ultimately missing out on a whole pool of talent of return to work mums. So I think that's quite interesting. Obviously, non-biased recruitment. And I'm um, personally an advocate for women's networks, having built one from four to several thousand now scaled into Saudi. Well, yes. And that is really interesting that you've just scaled into Saudi, because while this report, obviously, we're focusing on the UAE figures, there is a lot of stuff going over just over the border. You know, I mean, there really have been advances there. There's a certain amount of cynicism, I think, still around uh, the progress being made in Saudi Arabia. Again, you know, there's lots of headlines, there's lots of PR. But what's so interesting, you've actually seen it on the ground, haven't you? So what is going on? Are women being advanced in, in Saudi? Are they being able to ask for sort of better jobs and better pay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I feel really privileged to be immersed in the market there as the first and only women's network, which was a huge ambitious project and quite a scary one. But it's something that we've done. And it's earned me a seat at the UN um, in Saudi as an SDG5 ambassador, which is all a little bit unbelievable. I have to say that I'm so impressed with actually Saudi national women. Um, You know, the region has such a high percent of Gen Zs as well. 70% of Saudi is Gen Zs. Uh, Gen Zs are known for their ethics, for their radical reform. So I think what's really interesting is, you know, a lot of Saudi national females moving through the ranks in STEM. So, you know, engineering and so on and so forth. So um, a lot more than the guys. So I think in a few years, perhaps not in our lifetime, we will start to see a flip where there's more women in the male-dominated traditional sectors than there are men. So that's going to be something to watch. Do you know, I think it could happen in our lifetime. I think it's really quite impressive to see how uh, the women in Saudi are advancing. It's like they yeah. were they were hibernating and, and growing strength and now are an absolute force for good. It's absolutely fascinating to see what's going on there. Emma, as always, fantastic to have you join us in the studio. Could talk to you for hours. Sadly, we got to pop to the news, uh, but it's been a great pleasure having you join us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Always happy to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. That's Emma Burdett, the founder of Wild, the Women in Leadership Deliver Network. Thank you for your time. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, something intriguing has been going on uh, down uh, on the streets of Dubai because the police is launching a new initiative to reward cyclists and e-scooter riders for good behaviour. They've been handing out uh, special pins and certificates to the people who are sticking to the traffic laws. Let's find out a little bit more of this strategy. I'm joined by Diana Gardy, who is uh, from the security awareness team at Dubai Police. Diana, thank you so much for joining me on the line. It's always great to speak to you. Give me a sense of who came up with this idea and and what the aim is. Well, good morning, first of all. Thank you for having me back again. It's a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to have you on, Diana. Tell me a bit about the aim of this strategy. Yes, so this uh, strategy, actually, it was developed by the traffic department and specifically the traffic education section. And uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it around the news, probably, but Major General Saif al-Mazroui, he's the director of the General Department of Traffic at Dubai Police. And here is, uh, he actually released a few statements uh, explaining why we created such an initiative. 
So if you remember in our last interview, we were actually discussing uh, more, uh, you know, along the lines of uh, giving out fines and what kind of penalties there are. So we decided to take it and turn it, uh, turn it into a more positive twist. So instead of punishing people, we're trying to give them some kind of positive reinforcement. So we created something called the Scooter Hero Pin, which is the pin that you were talking about. So there we have the sort of the carrot and the stick approach. We've had the stick. This exactly. is the carrot. And, um, and so what is it that people have to do in order to get one of these special pins? So in general, I've, I'm sure that you've noticed, actually, you pointed out that there's a lot of officers in the field now. And while many people do think that they are there, you know, to give out penalties, many of the officers are actually there observing the behavior of the of the users of scooters. So if you want to have such a pin, which I really hope all of you do, we actually just ask you to adhere to the policies or to the rules that we provided you, such as wearing all of the safety equipment, using the correct roads, you know, and uh, wearing the helmets, reflective jackets, having your correct uh, lights installed on the scooter. So basically following all the safety guidelines will uh, kind of help you or actually it will definitely help you to receive one of these uh, scooter hero pins. And just to add to that, we actually had a release on uh, Dubai Police's social media. We did a small video where we were thanking the people for their participation in this initiative. And you also get a chance to become famous on Dubai Police social media as a scooter hero. You do indeed. And it's very sweet seeing the guys uh, who've won the pins so far. A really lovely initiative there. Real sense of sort of uh, Dubai Police working within the community. And like I say, yeah, definitely don't go down the beach track if without a helmet because there's always officers there. Every time I pass it now, there's officers there keeping an eye on people. And certainly you can... You can see the sort of that the, they're hoping to create a sort of best practice environment and soon they won't need to be there because everyone will just got used to the fact that you need to stick a helmet on. You need to stick on the reflective gear uh, when you jump on your scooter or on your bike. Diana Gardi, always lovely to have you on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, that is Diana. She is uh, from the security awareness team at Dubai Police. Right, continuing our conversation uh, over the next few minutes about uh, women's rights, women's inclusion here in the UAE. That's after we came 22nd in a list of 177 countries. I am finding some of the comments coming through on this very interesting indeed. But we're going to pause just for a few minutes because it is time now for us to talk sport. I'm joined on the line as ever by the fabulous Chris McCarty, who promised me regular appearances in the studio and now is on the telephone, which makes me very angry indeed, Chris. Georgia, I've given you one already this week. I'm a, <laughs> I might just give you a second appearance this week, but I can do no more. I'm a busy boy. I've got other things to be doing, Georgia, as you know. There is nothing more important than your daily slot on the agenda. I think it's important <laughs> to remember that. I, I think your show should come secondary to me. I think your, your manifold sponsorships should come second to me. It's outrageous. But I will let you talk well, I'm about not, I'm simply not paid enough by you <laughs> or by the organisation, Georgia. But that's a conversation for a different day. I have to highlight that Chris McCarty has paid precisely nothing to appear on the agenda <laughs> and therefore is a very good man. We have no budget for him. And we couldn't afford you if we did. Um, OK, Chris, I will, I will stop maligning you for not coming into the studio because, as ever, very grateful, particularly because there was Premier League action last night, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Uh, unfortunately, the clocks going back in the UK a week or so ago means that you can stay up until after 2am to watch the football. <laughs> I've got to say, I'm glad I did last night. You George. did? Last night, 
Last night's game was incredible. One of the most bizarre Premier League matches in history. The long and short of it, the full-time result read Tottenham 1, Chelsea 4. Tottenham's first defeat this season under Ange Postecoglou, but that only tells part of the story. Spurs finished with just nine men, Christian Romero and Destiny Udogi, both sent off in this one. It was three late goals that settled it. A hat-trick for Nicholas Jackson. Five goals, yes, you heard this right, five goals disallowed uh, due to various infractions. It was a football match that had it all. The big storyline, though, Chelsea have beaten Spurs and Tottenham's unbeaten run, and their ascent to the top of the table, at least for now, is over. What a game. I mean, that sounds full of action, at least. Uh, so I can't believe you stayed up that late, though. Absolutely astonishing. Uh, let's look at cricket, because we had controversial scenes at the World Cup, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yesterday's match between Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, it was ultimately won by Bangladesh. But the big story that everyone in the world cricket is talking about is the dismissal of Angelo Matthews. The first time in international cricket history that a batter has been timed out. Now, you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, essentially, Angelo Matthews strolled to the crease. He had two minutes, essentially, to get himself sorted, to get himself right to face at the bowler's ball. Now, Angela Matthews was ready just as Shakib Al-Hassan, the Bangladesh skipper, was getting ready to bowl. He noticed that his strap on his helmet had broken. He then signalled, I've got to fix the strap. Ultimately, though, the rules don't uh, allow, well, they allow for that, but it was up to Shakib Al-Hassan to apply common sense to say, OK, I'll give you your due. You've got an issue with the equipment. Shakib Al-Hassan didn't do that. He spoke to the umpires. He, in effect, he implemented the rule that states Angelo Matthews had two minutes to be ready. Angelo Matthews was incandescent. He was furious that the umpires upheld the decision and Angelo Matthews trudged off the field. No sooner had he arrived than he was trudging off, having become a pub quiz master's favourite cricketer <laughs> because the first international cricketer to be timed out is the Sri Lanka's. Angela Matthews. It sounds really unfair, that decision. One of those ones where the sportsmanship was sort of exactly. undermined by uh, some com- a sort of computer says no type rules and regulations. Yeah, and that's it. You know, Angela Matthews afterwards called the decision a disgrace. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of said what an awful lot of us said as well, Georgia. If you want to win a cricket match like that, and so be it, but it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth. Where was the common sense? And as you pointed out as well, listen, when we're all talking about the safety and security of players, you know, that was a safety issue. He wanted his helmet to be correctly fixed. He wanted to feel comfortable in that. And for Shakib al to take advantage of that little loophole and ensure that he could be heading back to the hutch, yeah, it's, uh, it leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in the mouth. It does indeed. Now, it is the race that stops a nation. It is the Melbourne World Cup. I seem to remember a time when we covered it live on Dubai Eye, such is the love for horse racing in this country. Of course, often a Godolphin horse in that race. Uh, But who was the winner? Yeah, it was without a fight. The winner about an hour and a half ago, 90 minutes or so ago. It's the race that stops a nation, as you say, down there in Melbourne, the Melbourne Cup. So without a fight, your victor, giving jockey Mark Zara back-to-back victories. It is also the first win for Australian father and son training duo Anthony and Sam Friedman as well. So a home winner for the Melbourne Cup. And no such luck for Godolphin this time around, but they'll be back, no mistake about that. 
And uh, yes, without a fight, you're a winner of the 2023 Melbourne Cup. And before we know it, it will be through the winter, we'll be the other side, and it'll be the World Cup here. I always feel that this six months pass horribly quickly. Uh, Chris McCarty, as always, great pleasure to have you join us. Thank you very much indeed. Head of sports, of course, for Dubai Eye and your presenter of your Drive Time show, which is, of course, off script on air this afternoon from 5pm all the way through until 8. Make sure you tune in on your drive home. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Now, as promised, we are going to now talk about this man. I don't know about you. I don't even know how to turn him down. He's on a hot key and I don't know how to turn him down. Let's try and get rid of him that way. I hadn't realised he had so many fans here in the UAE ever since uh, that basically he's going to perform twice in January and ever since the announcement came through it feels like it's the only thing anyone has been talking about he's going to be performing at the Sevens Stadium in what is supposed to be the largest open air concert to ever take place in Dubai and yeah it's like sheer and fever is sweeping the nation and I wanted to find out why. Why does he have this enduring sort of multi-demographic appeal? And joining me to talk me through that is musicologist Dr. Shara Rambaran. Shara, lovely to have you join us on Teams. Good morning to you. Tell me, why Why is Ed so popular? I mean, I'm a fan myself, as are the kids, but, but how come, you know, how come he's, he's cool for me and cool for the kids? Oh, thank you, Georgia, and good morning. Yes, well, Ed Sheeran, he's only 32 years old, and yeah, and, and we're still talking about him today. Yeah, he's a remarkable, uh, gifted musician. He's very talented. He's an exceptional singer and songwriter. And what makes him really amazing is that he, is, he experiments well with music. Not only is he known for his folk soft rock and rock music he really experiments with other genres as well such as hip-hop pop grime and so on and it makes him really demanding in the music industry needless to say he's a very much demanded musician and singer and songwriter and not surprisingly a lot of well-known artists wants to collaborate with him and with his music it's very radio friendly he talks about romance he talks about his own life, his personal experiences and everyday life, which makes him really relatable um, to the public, which is why I would say he has a very large international fan base. Do you think a part of his appeal is his character? I actually watched, uh, there was a series, I think, on Apple TV about him, and it was really quite raw. You know, he talked about um, the bereavements that he suffered in his life and, and how hard he found that. And I, and I have to say, I, I definitely became more of a fan as a consequence of that series. I think, with, yeah, I totally agree. With Ed Sheeran, he does come across as very authentic and what you see is what you get with Ed Sheeran so which makes him extra more special and more relatable to everybody uh, which is really fascinating because we don't really see that 
much with you know well-known artists and groups out there and what makes him even more appealing is yeah like I said what you see is what you get right from the start when he started become you know becoming a well-known musician on the internet you know he he was very appealing and still is very appealing um, to everybody and what's even more fascinating of Ed Sheeran is I was reading about him the other day he, he he just wanders off in his local streets, the local pubs, you know, doing his normal life. And at the same time, he's welcoming everybody and his fans into his world. So, yeah, it's very, he comes across as very humble and very likeable personality. Really interesting, Dr. Shara Rambaran there. Thank you very much for joining me on the line. Uh, Dr. Shara is a musicologist uh, giving us the lowdown there on what it is about Ed Sheeran that is so universally popular. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.